Welcome to the Fairfax Church Podcast. We're a community in Fairfax, Virginia, following Jesus. We upload new messages every week, and to learn more about us, visit us at fairfax.cc. Enjoy the message. I'm so thankful to have you here today, and uh, we are, I'll just jump right into it, we are in the final week of a series that we have been doing in the book of Esther. And uh, just a little review, the first two weeks we dealt with the, the first four chapters of the book of Esther. There's, there's ten chapters in Esther, and we dealt with the first four chapters that are filled with um, uh, Netflix-level intrigue, like, like intrigue and murder plots and corruption at the highest levels of government, uh, stuff that obviously never happens in real life, and um, just all of this, all of this incredible stuff that takes place. Just fascinating, fascinating stuff. And Esther, the protagonist in the story, um, finds herself right in the middle of all of this intrigue and all of these plots and all of this corruption at the highest level. She finds herself in the middle of all of that. And even though God is not mentioned, God is all over what is happening. And God is using Esther and others to uh, keep his people from experiencing annihilation. He's using Esther and others to accomplish his mission in the world. God is at work as he often is behind the scenes. God is at work in a way that sometimes feels like he is hidden. He is at work accomplishing his mission in the world. And then uh, last week we looked at uh, Haman, who's the antagonist in the story. And Haman is this rising star in King Xerxes' administration. And as I mentioned last week, he's probably one of the best case studies in scripture of pride and the impact of pride and the the destruction of pride when it's just kind of, when it goes unchecked in our lives. And so we spent last week kind of talking about the issue of pride and what that looks like and how do we define that and how do we kind of see it at work and what are the negative effects and all of that. Uh, and if you haven't had a chance to see or listen to the last uh, three weeks, I encourage you to go back and, and, uh, and uh, catch up with what we are doing. So today, we're going to look at the last few chapters of Esther. And the last few chapters of Esther are all about the Israelites uh, receiving relief from their enemies, or another word is rest, rest from their enemies. The same Hebrew word that is translated in this particular text as relief is translated as rest in other texts in the Bible. And so this these last few chapters, after we get through all the intrigue, all of that, these last few chapters are all about the Israelites experiencing rest from their enemies. If you read through the biblical narrative, you realize that the Israelites are always dealing with enemies, like they have all kinds of enemies. Um, they were uh, people that are wanting to do them harm, people that are intending to do them harm. They were slaves in Egypt. Uh, when they got out of Egypt, they were attacked in the wilderness. When they got out of the wilderness and went into the promised land, they were attacked by all sorts of uh, enemies in the promised land. And then, even when they are taken into exile into another country, 
there is a movement afoot to annihilate them even in this neighboring country in which they are, li- they are living. And the person who's kind of behind that, um, that work, that enemy in this particular case is Haman. And Haman gets uh, King Xerxes, uh, the king of Persia, to sign this decree and seal it with his signet ring that on a set day, anyone in Persia, anyone in Persia can kill any Jew basically living in their neighborhood, living in their vicinity, living in their town, living in their particular district, and take all of their wealth as plunder. It's an act of evil that has been inflicted on all kinds of groups throughout history. Like you look at the history of the world and you see this kind of evil uh, being inflicted on all kinds of groups, some that uh, are, are more known to history and we, we talk about them and recognize them, some that are not as known, some that are uh, acknowledged, some that are denied, all, all of that. But you see it through the course of history, this kind of thing that is taking place to the Israelites here. And when Queen Esther hears about Haman's plan, Mordecai, Remember, Mordecai is her cousin. Her mom and dad died when she was very young, and Mordecai, her cousin, who was older than her, took Esther in to be his daughter, basically, to live with her, to raise her. And Mordecai, when when he finds out about this plan, when Esther finds out about this plan, he challenges Esther to do something about it. And so, when you get to chapter 5, we see Esther going to the king with a request um, And even though in going into the presence of the king without being um, invited into the presence of the king, put her own life in jeopardy. Uh, But she goes into the presence of the king and King uh, Xerxes receives her. So all of that's good. And then he says to her, I will give you whatever you want up to half of my kingdom. So that's all good. Like, yes, you're welcome in. And whatever it is that you want, I will give you that up to half of my kingdom. And so what does Esther ask for? I mean, she can ask for anything up to half his kingdom. Like, what does she ask for? And what she asks for, it's really, really interesting. Kind of odd, initially, when you think about it. What she asks for is a banquet. What she asks for is a meal where just she and the king and Haman are present. And on the surface, that seems like a really odd request given everything that's at stake and everything at stake for her, everything at stake for her people, all of that. But Esther has a plan, and this is a part of her plan, and the king agrees. And so they come together, Esther, the king, Haman, just the three of them, for this banquet, for this meal. And at that meal, the king asks Esther the question again, because he's like, I know you you, you have to want more than a banquet. Like, what, what do you want? You have to want more than a meal. I will give, again, I'll give you whatever you request. I'll give you up to half of my kingdom. And Esther's response this time is to ask the king to come back tomorrow for another banquet, for another meal where just she and king and the king and Haman are present. And the king agrees to that. Which brings us to chapter 7. And and this is what we read in chapter 7. So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther. And as they were drinking wine on that second day, the king again asked Esther, uh, 
Queen Esther, what is your petition? It can't be just one banquet. It can't be just two banquets. It can't be just getting together for two meals. Like, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? Even up to half of the kingdom, it will be granted. And then Queen Esther answered, I have found fa- if I have found favor with you, okay. And if it pleases your majesty, grant me my life, my life, grant me my life, this is my petition. And spare my people, this is my request. For I and my people have been sold for destruction and slaughter and annihilation. Now, at this point, this catches King Xerxes off guard. Because at this point, he has not connected the dots that the decree that he issued uh, and that Haman kind of talked him into issuing had any impact on his wife, on, on the queen. Because Esther has hidden her identity. Esther has not told her that, he, that she is a Jew. She's not told him that, that she is a part of this community, that basically he has issued a decree to allow to be annihilated. And, and the king doesn't really know all of this, but he's starting to connect the dots as she is now making this request. And, and so he begins to ask Esther, Esther some questions. And this way, verse five, King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, well, who is he? He's starting to connect the dots. Okay, I've issued this decree. It's not only going to affect a bunch of people. It's going to affect you. They're your people. Uh, I'm realizing, wow, that's a really, really bad thing. I did not intend for that to impact you. Like, who is it? Who is the man who has dared to do such a thing? And Esther said, remember, this is a banquet. Three people there, Haman, uh, King Xerxes, and Esther, and Esther says the adversary and enemy is the vile, is this vile Haman. And Haman, who had been bragging, I don't know if you remember, I think it was two weeks ago, I talked about how Haman, went, or maybe it was last week, I talked about how Haman went home to his wife and to his friends and was bragging about the fact that Esther had invited him to this banquet. Like the queen has invited me to the banquet. It's just me, the king, and the queen. That's like awesome. And now he's sitting there and he's going, oh, crap. You're like, I had no idea. And he realizes that, oh, my goodness. And so Haman is terrified before the king and the queen. And the king gets up in rage. He left his wine. He went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. So the king gets up in rage, but not just because he's angry at Haman. The king also realizes that he has contributed to this, that at some level he is to blame as well. He, by his decisions, has created this huge, huge problem for himself. And the fact that he has issued this decree and sealed it with his signet ring, that's a huge deal, which means the decree cannot just be canceled. Like he can't just say, oh, never mind. 
like, ah, no, let's not carry that decree out. No, he has, he has sealed the decree. He's, written, he's signed the decree. He's sealed the decree with his, with his signet ring. He cannot now just say, oh, I've changed my mind. Like, it cannot be canceled. To do that would have all kind of ramifications, including a possible insurrection against the king himself because he issued a decree and then he basically uh, took back the decree that he had put his signet ring on. And he actually, even though Haman is fearful that he's gonna, put, he's gonna be put to death because of his, the fact that he's been a co-conspirator in all of this, the reality is that he can't really put Haman to death just because he encouraged the king to issue the decree because that would undermine the king's authority as well because the king ultimately bears responsibility for the decree. It's his decree. And clearly, he did not do his due diligence. We got a lot of lawyers in our church. We don't know what that means. He has not done his due diligence before he issues the decree. So that's on him. And so he bears some responsibility for that as well, which means that he can't just like take it out on Haman. So the king is in a tough spot. He's furious at Haman. He's furious at the decree that now he realizes is impacting his own wife. And to some degree, he is furious with himself for allowing all of this to happen. Now, Haman knows that the king is angry with him. And Haman is convinced that the king is going to kill him. So he pleads with Esther for his life. And in pleading with Esther, this is the interesting part of the text, where the text kind of takes an interesting twist. In pleading for his life, in doing that, Haman actually signs his own death warrant because no man was allowed to be in the same room as the queen by herself. Like that was a law is that you could not, as a man, be in the same room as the queen all by yourself. In fact, actually, the law was that even if there's a room full of people, that if you're a man, you have to be at least seven steps away from the queen. It was called the, the Taylor Swift rule. It was like... Uh, the Taylor Swift law. Okay, I apologize for that. Um, so, so he knows that, and as soon as the king had left the room, Haman should have excused himself and left the room as well. And not only does Haman not leave the room, he throws himself on the couch that the queen is sitting on. He throws himself on the couch that she is on to beg for his own life. And this is what happens next. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. And the king exclaimed, will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? And as soon as the word left the king's mouth, they, they, and the they are like the servants, the people that work in the palace, they immediately, without any, like the king didn't say anything else, uh, they covered Haman's face. And then, I love this part, <laughs> then uh, Harbani, Harbana, 
one of the eunuchs attending the king, so one of the servants of the king, he like immediately, without being asked, like the king doesn't say, hey, what should we do with Haman? Like, is there any way that we can deal with this? Like, this is a capital offense. Is there anything that we can do? Like, just without being asked, without, you know, any of that, he just very, very quickly says, hey, 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 hey. Hey, there's, there's a 75-foot gallows that's down the road that Haman built. He built it to hang Mordecai on it, but it would be like, king, it would be a great idea to hang him on it. Like, he's way too excited about this. He's way too excited and it kind of, it's, it indicates, I talked about this last week, of just how much the servants in the palace hated Haman. Like they just despise this guy. So when they get the chance, like they're like jumping all over themselves to come up with creative ideas of how this guy can be put to death. And it's just like, this is not the point of the message, but it is a reminder. I, I'm a leader. So many of you are here are leaders. It is a reminder that, um, that leading involves so much more than positional authority. Like if you are leading just by your positional authority, then you really aren't leading. Like Haman had all the positional authority in the world. He had become the prime minister, basically, of Persia. And yet everyone who he was in charge of, everyone who reported him, hated him because he had no respect for the people who reported to him. Which just this reminder as I read this text of like, as a leader, it is not just about leaning into your positional authority. It is about the way that you treat those who report to you, the respect that you have, the relationships that you have, the way that you affirm people, the way that you encourage people, the way that you talk people, talk with people, the way that you process things with people. It's about all of that, not just positional power. And so um, the king said, great idea, <laughs> great idea, hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai, and then the king's fury subsided. And as soon as the king sees Haman on the couch, basically, with Esther, he knows that one of his problems has been solved because what Haman is doing is a capital offense, and so he's hanged for it. Now in chapter 8, we're not going to read chapter 8, but now in chapter 8, we see how the king's other problem this original decree that he can't take back, how the king's other problem is dealt with. And Esther is the one who solves this problem for him. She proposes a counter decree to the king. Since the first decree that, that uh, gave people permission to attack and kill the Jews could not be repealed, the second decree allowed the Jews and anyone else who wanted to help them to defend themselves in order, in other words, allow them to attack back. Now, Esther is hoping that the counter decree, that the consequence of the counter decree will be that the people who had originally intended on attacking her people would pause, think about some of the consequences and not follow through but that's not what happens as you read chapter 8 
people attacked them anyway. And it resulted in incredible bloodshed for the enemies of the Jews. Over 70,000 people, we read in the text, over 70,000 people die, including all 10 of Haman's sons. So it's just, it's just this bloodbath. It's just this uh, bloodshed that takes place. Which brings us to chapter 9. And as the book of Esther is wrapping up, this is what we're told. Mordecai, her cousin, recorded these events. And he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes, near and far, to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th, the days of the month of Adar, as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies, or rest from their enemies, to celebrate getting rest from their enemies. And as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. Now, that celebration is called Purim. And Purim is basically um, a celebration that, that starts here. It was a celebration to, to celebrate um, the rest from their enemies that Esther had secured on behalf of her people. But as you um, read through the narrative of the Old Testament, you find out, just like with some other cases, you find out that it's a temporary rest. It's the kind of rest that we see Israel getting throughout the Old, the Old Testament. In fact, the whole Old Testament na- narrative is a narrative of rest from their enemies, relief from their enemies that ends up being a temporary rest, a rest that does not last. Moses gave the Israelites that kind of rest from their enemies, but it didn't last. Joshua gave the Israelites that kind of rest from their enemies, but it didn't last. David, King David, gave the Israelites rest from their enemies, but it didn't last. Solomon, King Solomon, gave the Israelites rest from their enemies, but it didn't last. And the list goes on and on. And now Esther has done the same thing. Esther has given the Israelites rest from their enemies, but it is a rest. As you read through the Old Testament, you read through the narrative there, you realize that it is a rest that is temporary. It is a rest that does not last. In fact, all of these Old Testament leaders are kind of... um, Savior-type figures. They're kind of Messiah-type figures. God raises them up. God raised Moses up and Joshua up and David up and Solomon up and Esther up. God raises all of these up to save his people, to give them rest from their enemies. But then when you get to the later prophets like Isaiah and Daniel, they begin to prophesy about a different kind of Messiah. They begin to prophesy about a Messiah who's going to come and give his people a permanent rest from their enemies, a rest that lasts, a rest that cannot be taken away, a rest that that will not be taken from them. And there's lots of different passages, but let me just read Daniel 7, the vision that Daniel gets. It says in verse 13, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. 
And he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshiped him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion. Like his power is an everlasting power. The rest that he is going to give is an everlasting rest that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. That's the thing that you, you read through the Old Testament. You see that, you see that the Israel, the kingdom is set up and then it, and then it experiences attack from its enemies and then it's destroyed and then it's kind of set back up and then it's destroyed and then it goes into exile and then it comes back like you. That's just the story. That's the story of the Israelites in the Old Testament. But, but Daniel is prophesying about a different kind of Messiah, this son of man. And then when Jesus comes along, he declares, he declares a number of things about himself, but one of the things that he declares is that he is the son of man. It's like, you know this son of man that was prophesied about in Daniel and Isaiah and other places? You know this son of man that you've been reading about in your scriptures, in the Hebrew scriptures? You know this son of man? I am that son of man. He declares himself to be the son of man. And his disciples immediately think that that means that he is going to lead an attack on their enemies, in this case, the Romans, and destroy them. But then Jesus starts saying all of these things about enemies that does not line up with their vision of what the Son of Man and the Messiah is all about. He starts saying things like this, love your enemies. What? He starts saying things like, forgive your enemies. What? Son of man, Messiah, forgive your enemies. He starts telling them when they say, well, then how many times should we forgive them? And he says, they say seven times, like that's a lot to forgive your enemy seven times. He says, no, 70 times seven. And we're just this unconditional, just unconditional grace, unconditional forgiveness. Just, just be willing to forgive your enemies. And then he says at one point, and there's so many different verses that we could quote, but he says, if your enemy, this is like, what are you talking about, Jesus? If your enemy takes your coat, how should you respond? By giving him something else as well. Like if he takes your coat, then give him your other coat. If he takes your coat and he's, given, he's taken one coat, then give him two coats. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus' enemies come for him, his disciples in that moment think, oh, okay, this is it. This is it. This is the moment we've been waiting for. This is when Jesus is going to give us Rest. He's going to give us relief from our enemies. And Peter even draws the sword like he's ready for battle. He's ready to go in to battle. He, and Jesus says to him, Peter, put away your sword. That's not the kind of battle that we are fighting. Purim celebrated the temporary rest from their enemies that Esther secured for her people. But it points, Purim points to another kind of rest. It points to a rest that is not temporary. 
It points to a rest that is permanent. It points to a rest that will not go away. It points, ultimately, it points to the cross. Because the cross reminds us that God's way of fighting evil and injustice in the world is not with more evil and injustice. Like in the Garden of Gethsemane, if Jesus had picked up a sword and wiped out the Romans, wiped out the oppressors, gotten them out of the land, taken them off the face of the planet, he would have done nothing more than Moses did and Joshua did and David did and Solomon did and Esther had done. He would have secured a temporary rest from one specific enemy. The natural response of the human heart is to respond is to respond to hurtful force with hurtful force. That's just the way in this broken, sinful world and in our brokenness, that's just our tendency of how you respond to hurtful response. You respond to hurtful force with hurtful force. When someone wrongs us or hurts our reputation, we want to tell everybody what happened and hurt them back in some way. When someone has robbed us from experiencing happiness or robbed us from experiencing love or whatever it is, we want to rob them from experiencing happiness. We want to rob them from experiencing love. And the list just goes on and on and on. But when we respond to hurtful force, with hurtful force, we don't conquer evil. In fact, that's what we think when we respond to hurtful force with hurtful force. We think that we will somehow conquer evil, but we do not conquer evil. Just the opposite. Evil wins. And you see it over and over and over again in history. It's the history of this broken, sinful world. The history of this broken, sinful world is that hurtful force is responded to with hurtful force. But when you do that, all you do is just create a bigger enemy, <laughs> a greater enemy. You just perpetuate the cycle of hurt. And that's the history of the world. Like that's the history, not just in, in geopolitical realm, that's just the history in personal realm. That's the history of families. That's the history of friendships. That's the history of people's personal relationships. It just perpetuates this cycle of hurt. Some of us have, have been a part of family systems where we have just seen this cycle of hurt that has just been perpetuated just over and over and over and over again. Jesus responds to evil. You know, sometimes the sense is you've got to respond, you've got to respond to evil with some kind of violent force. And Jesus, it's interesting that Jesus responds to evil with, with violence. 
but it's a different kind of violence. It's what some have called the violence of grace. I love that phrase, the violence of grace. And, and if you're trying to kind of get your mind around, what does that look like, the violence of grace? What are you even talking about, the violence of grace? Let me just give you an illustration that comes from one of my favorite musicals, Les Mis. I love Les Mis. And uh, by the way, I, at one point, I was talking about musicals that I love, and I was talking about Hamilton. And I said, I really love Hamilton. It's one of my favorite musicals. And someone came up to me after the service, distraught, like just distraught. And they said, I thought Les Mis was your favorite musical of all time. I didn't know Hamilton had surpassed it. I said, well, I didn't technically say it had surpassed it. You know? So anyway, I've got room for different musicals, okay? Les Mis is one of my favorite musicals of all time. And most of you know the story of Les Mis, right? Jean Valjean is a good man who goes to prison for stealing a loaf of bread to feed his family. And in that process and in going to prison, he is unjustly treated. He's hurt by people. Uh, the result of all of this hurt is that he becomes himself a hardened criminal. And when he gets out of prison, he finds refuge with a bishop who takes him in. And Jean Valjean, like, <laughs> thanks the bishop for his, his hospitality uh, and his kindness by stealing his silverware and plates that he has and then fleeing into the night. And the police eventually uh, catch up, as you know, to Jean Valjean. And when they bring him back to the bishop, the bishop acts like everything that he has in his possession that he has given to Jean Valjean as a gift. And, and in fact, just to kind of convince the police, he, he says to Jean Valjean, hey, you forgot these. He says, I, I was giving you this, but I, there was some other stuff I was trying to give you as well. And he gives them these beautiful, two beautiful silver candlesticks. And he hands them to Jean Valjean. He says, here, you, you didn't take these. I, I wanted you to have these as well. And the police leave. And after they leave, the bishop says to Jean Valjean, remember, my brother, you no longer belong to evil, but to good. It's your soul I'm buying for you. I'm giving it to God. And Jean Valjean is just like undone by what the bishop has done. And in the book, you know, the musical is based on the book that Victor Hugo wrote um, by the same name, Les Miserables. In the book, Victor Hugo writes this about that encounter. He says, when Jean Valjean left the bishop's house, he felt he knew the pardon of this priest was the hardest assault and the most formidable attack which he had ever sustained on his heart. The hardest, the hardest assault and the most formidable attack that he has ever sustained on his heart. That is the violence of grace. There is nothing, nothing in the world more 
violent than grace. And if you have ever experienced grace from someone, if someone has ever extended you grace, grace for in the midst of failure and and decisions that do not reflect God's best for your life and someone has extended grace, if you've ever experienced grace, you know that grace is this traumatic experience. This traumatic experience that fundamentally changes us. One of the members of our church is Mercy Niway, who works at the World Bank. And recently at the bank, they held an event that was um, a conversation. It was a conversation between a Jewish woman and a Palestinian man who had both experienced profound losses inflicted by the other group. And despite the tragedy that they both had experienced, these two individuals, and actually um, many others who have kind of become a part of that community, have chosen to extend grace to their enemies. They even met personally with those who had inflicted upon them this terrible pain. And it led both of them down a path of healing and a path of reconciliation. And not surprisingly, in that process and in that journey, they have become close friends. Here's the hardest thing I want to say. Because it's the hardest to live out. It's true. Scripture reminds us of it over and over and over again. But it is so hard to live. And that is this. That ultimately the only way to destroy an enemy is for an enemy to become a friend. Ultimately, the only way to destroy an enemy is for an enemy to become a friend. And that doesn't mean that when we extend grace that every enemy will become a friend. That doesn't mean that when we show the violence of grace, the the overwhelming sense of grace that that everyone will respond in the way that we hope that they will respond, but it doesn't change the reality that ultimately the only way to destroy an enemy is for that enemy to become a friend. And that's what Jesus did for us on the cross. That's what Jesus did for you on the cross and me on the cross because the Bible says that before we experience God's grace, that we were what? We were enemies of God. You were an enemy of God before you experienced His grace. I was an enemy of God 
before I experienced his grace. And that what Christ did on the cross is that he took those who were his enemies and made it possible for them to become his friends. Paul says it this way in Romans 5. I love this passage, verse 10. For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him, became a friend of his through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? And like I said, just because you extend grace doesn't mean that everyone you extend grace to becomes your friend or responds in the way that you hope they would respond or doesn't tread on your grace or doesn't continue to hurt you. That's the story of the gospel. That's the story of God. That God has extended this grace to every single person on the planet, every single person who has ever lived. Does everyone respond to that grace? Does everyone who is extended grace by God become a friend of God? No. Some people choose to continue to be God's enemies. To continue to live lives that do not reflect who God is and what God has done and how much God loves them. But God loves so much that he continues to extend grace so that his enemies can become his friends. Because he knows that ultimately, the only way to defeat evil is to make an enemy a friend. On the cross, Jesus assaulted his enemies with grace. And the moment you understand and embrace what Jesus has done, understand and embrace it. It fundamentally changes you. And it empowers you to assault your enemies with grace as well. That's what grace does. It changes the way that we wage war against evil. It changes the way that we fight our battles. We are still in the midst of battles. It just changes the way we fight our battles. And it's the only thing that can Give us the rest from our enemies that our soul so desperately desires. We're going to take communion uh, today. It's just a great Sunday to celebrate what Christ has done for us on the cross. And communion like reminds us of the violence of God's grace. Like communion is the the best symbol, the best expression of the violence of God's grace because it reminds us that Jesus did not conquer evil by spilling the blood of his enemies. He conquered evil by spilling his own blood for his enemies. That's you. That's me. So in a moment, we're going to stand together and I'm going to pray and our worship team is going to lead us in worship. And while we're worshiping, the ushers are going to come forward and they're going to pass the communion elements out. And you can take the bread and take the cup. Jesus invites you to his table. 
and then hang on to those and I'll come back up and we'll partake of communion together. God, thank you for the violence of your grace. Thank you that you did not spill the blood of your enemies to defeat evil. That you poured out your own blood for your enemies to defeat evil. And we are the recipients of And as we take communion, may we be reminded that this is is the way that you have chosen to wage war. This is the way that you have chosen to take on the battle of evil in this world. Thank you so much for listening to the Fairfax Church podcast. You can find more messages like this on our YouTube channel at Fairfax Church or follow us here. If you were blessed by the message and resources provided, feel free to leave us a review.